education system. And uh, that was a nice opportunity being in their nice big uh, auditorium. So that, that's another incentive that has nothing to do in the course, but is, is an opportunity. All right, so let's talk about the reading in the reader from the binder on, in this case, the uh, development of the International Criminal Court and the basic crimes that are investigated by the court. Uh, this is an important discussion because this will introduce you to code-based systems. Some of you have been influenced, um, and I have your magic marker in my office, but I didn't give it back to you. Uh, some of you have taken a pre-law class at Georgia State, approximately half, half of you, a quarter of you. How many? Raise your hand, please. Maybe 45% of you have taken a pre, seems to be all on this side for some reason. Uh, have taken a pre-law course. You're familiar with the common law system of the United States of Britain and the other English post-colonies. The code-based systems, again, to review, is the system the majority of the world has based on reading codes. Um, I thought it was interesting. I noticed uh, a statement, um, for any of you who follow soccer, that uh, Thierry Henry would not be kicked out of the World Cup. Some of you know he had a Manuel de Dios hand of God uh, goal to get England, uh, get France in over Ireland. And the, re the reasoning that the, the uh, FIFA gave, the International Football Federation Association or whatever it stands for, was we couldn't find a code that specifically prohibited an offensive player from uh, being penalized for an intentional handball. All the codes in FIFA are for de defensive handling. So you may or may not know or care that in soccer, in international competitions, you can uh, further discipline a player beyond what the referee does at a particular game upon reviewing the videotapes and statements from both sides. This is particularly done for very vicious challenges, typically by defenders against offensive players. But there's no code that specifically, because there probably was no precedent uh, that would ban that. Now, technically, in a common law system, that approach of having to have a specific precedent usually would apply as well. But the logic is different, right? In a code-based system, you've got to find a line of words that says an offensive player may be further disciplined uh, for d deliberately handling a ball that you know, had to change the outcome of the game or something of, of that nature. But there was no such code. And so Henri is going to play in the uh, France's attempt to um, get through the group stages, and they, I doubt France will get through. For those of you who have an opinion, you can debate me about that privately. Um, but they got I think they're in Mexico, and I forgot who else is in their group. Yeah, Uruguay, these powerhouses. Anyway, France is the most star players and the weakest team. A common law system is the, you gotta have a case where the judge says, you know, and, off, and, and typically, uh, an offensive player would have had to come forward to have the same kind of rule. So on average, one would suspect you get the same outcome from both approaches. But one says you had a very specific factual situation that the court had decided before. And the other would be the code system, which says you have to have a line of code that prohibits it. Now, of course, a judge in a code-based system, unlike a common law system, does not have to cite a case and therefore has more leeway in interpreting the code. So you're going to get more departures from code-based systems. FIFA could have said, if they wanted to, and in all legal systems, judges have a lot of discretion, that 
about how they go about things, notwithstanding the world watching. They could have said, uh, just because it, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't probably say, even though it doesn't exclude offensive players, they would just say, you know, a deliberate handling of the ball that changes the outcome of a game applies to the factual situation, right? So you have the discretion to say whether it should be just defensive or offensive players or whether it should be more broad. And similarly, in a common law system like ours, the adversarial trial system, a judge can also make similar distinctions in interpreting the law and applying them to a set of facts. So in that sense, uh, there's no real way to guarantee that judges will uh, be restrained, but it's more like they are more likely to be restrained in a common law system, actually, the one that the English post-colonies, because there's more pressure of you to apply the current set of facts to the past set of facts where a law was applied. And if it's not there, then the judge looks like he or she is making law. Because if you actually extend the scope of facts beyond what the narrow set of facts were in the previous case resolution, you're basically extending the law to a broader set of circumstances. And in common law, there's a strong presumption at least in theory, although not in practice, but in theory, that judges should not make law. Now, if you go to law school, they'll all tell you judges don't make law, or at least they used to claim that. I think political science has demolished that view, certainly with the US Supreme Court, where obviously the Supreme Court judges uh, vastly differ in their methods of their interpretation. They have no court above them, so they're free to basically decide anyone, anything they want even though they're supposed to follow precedent and they're not supposed to reverse a previous decision of the US Supreme Court, but they've done that too. Yes? Yeah, um, uh, isn't that like judicial review? What? Um, when um, the judge... Like in the US Supreme Court in interpreting the Constitution, but, and the US Supreme Court generally doesn't take cases, although there are exceptions, that, that are not about interpreting the Constitution. But I'm not talking about that particular issue, okay? This is true whether just interpreting a law, interpreting a case, and the Constitution is not involved, okay? So the, I'm, I'm, the point I'm making is just to illustrate the differences of approaches, to introduce you to the difference of approaches. We're going to go over this over and over again. But to suggest that our discussion of the International Criminal Court is a code. The, the statute of the ICC, which was negotiated in Rome in July 1998 and came into binding force with 60 plus states out of 193 in the world ratifying it three years later is a code. Article 6 is the code on genocide. Article 7 is the code on crimes against humanity. Article 8 is the code on war crimes. Okay, It's not a precedent system at least from the start. However, we will see as the court evolves and hasn't even had a full trial yet, and all the indictees have been from Africa, but we will see whether they, the judges actually behave more like a common law approach, citing precedents and saying we're bound by them and so forth. And the reason why this is quite likely that this will be a hybrid court of common law and uh, code-based elements is that the highest courts in Germany, for example, which are code-based system, uh, and France to some extent, although it's not a court, it's actually part of the executive branch, um, and especially in Germany, though, has a code-based system, but the highest court of the land acts as if it were interpreting 
cases rather than interpreting codes, or it's codes and cases. And in some sense, the US Supreme Court is a code-based system as well, because although it's interpreting cases, it's also interpreting the words of the US Constitution. It doesn't just look at cases, right? It looks at the Constitution and looks at the Constitution with fresh eyes. Now, that may be not how it's supposed to do it, but if you look at how it actually behaves, as political scientists tend to do, they say, well, they're imposing their ideological beliefs or their attitudes on the particular phrases and then coming, choosing the cases that support that view and ignoring the cases that don't. What does that mean? That means that in some sense, a lot of ostensible differences between a code-based approach and a common law approach, which in practice don't differ a whole lot. The law is very confusing in both systems. You know? um, it's, even, it's even more confusing in the United States because it just takes longer to read all these cases than to read a code. But the problem you have in code-based systems is the, the statute will come, the, first of all, you have four major codes for administrative law, private law, public law, and criminal law. And then you have all these laws. So you read the code that applies, and then you read all the statutes from legislatures that attempt to implement that code. And you've got a morass of laws and a welter of, of, of interpretations. So it's difficult. Law, being a lawyer is a tough job uh, mentally. You have to be alert. It also allows, it causes a lot of frustration in society because you can't get a clear rule. And if you've got a lot of money for a lawyer, you can pretty much protect yourself against the ambiguity, but that's expensive. And at least if you've got a good paying job in a law firm, you make a lot of money because it's expensive and time consuming. All right, let's turn again to the uh, particular elements here. We're going to see how the International Criminal Court, which we'll use for our moot court, and we're primarily going to focus on Article 7, Crimes Against Humanity. So please look on the internet. Um, if, you, if you haven't bought the, inter, uh, the Best Way binder yet, uh, we'll, you know, in the meantime, before you buy it, look, read Article 7 on Crimes Against Humanity. But today we're not talking about the details of Crimes Against Humanity and whether a dictator you know, who used toxic chemicals in, in armed conflict or non-armed conflict would be potentially prosecutable uh, under the International Criminal Court. The reading suggests the basic approach of international law, which is really the basic approach of code-based systems in criminal law. Uh, but there is a difference. And if I had a, a magic marker, I'm going to have to remember to, to bring that. I'm sorry about that. Uh, first of all, in addition to whatever you learn about a code-based system, you have to say this is an international crime. Right? The International Criminal Court has to be an international crime. So what is that? First of all, an international crime is not just a violation of international code. Because the United States won a lot of concessions in the negotiations, even though the United States has never ratified the ICC statute. In my opinion, the United States played a very fancy game to domestic politics. I would call it the Jesse Helms effect, where uh, they wanted to be against the court, even though they were really for the court. David Sheffer, the uh, US uh, ambassador, 
was a long proponent of the court. President Clinton was in favor of the court. The United States wasn't the court. The United States, for rhetorical reasons, or maybe even for actual reasons, fear of rogue prosecutions, didn't want the US president, generals, service personnel serving overseas being prosecuted, period. Why? Because it's not good politics in the United States. So they wanted to be for the court, but against any American ever being eligible for prosecution. Now, this is obviously a contradiction. If you're going to have a court, you can't say everyone in the world is eligible except citizens of the United States. But that was the US position. The US didn't want to come out and admit that, so they, they stated it in the following way. They said, uh, we do not favor an institution that could prosecute a citizen of a non-state party. And it's true. The United States right now, theoretically, although it, it hasn't happened, probably will never happen, um, the United States has committed murder and torture, right? It's, it's very clear now that at least three people in Guantanamo who supposedly committed suicide were tortured to death. And if you look at Harper's website, you can see the, um, Scott Horton's article. But beyond that, you know, the United States has committed torture. There's Abu Ghraib. The pictures are absolutely a slam dunk. There's no question about it. Um, and the United States position is this was just, you know, people violating US law and they were prosecuted, right? Uh, and the fact that the United States designed policies at the highest levels to make these things an inevitable, which I suppose one could debate, uh, is irrelevant for the United States. So, and the United States and Bagram Air Base, which has never made much, much of a wave in the United States press, has you know, done some pretty awful things that were much worse than ever happened in Guantanamo. Afghanistan has ratified the International Criminal Court. Theoretically, a non-state party, i.e., the United States is not a state party, a party as a state to the International Criminal Court statute. One of its citizens in Afghanistan could be arrested by the government of Afghanistan and extradited to the International Criminal Court. And the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, if he or she decided, it is a he at the moment, um, decided that the United States was either unwilling or unable to properly investigate and prosecute crimes for which there's a probable cause, then the ICC could assert jurisdiction if it could prove it in a pretrial chamber hearing. You don't have to know all these details for this course. But what I'm illustrating is that you know, the United States clearly has managed to get the result it wants. Right? It has a court on Darfur. The United States announced there was genocide. And the United States is supporting the prosecution of the president and the interior minister of the government of Sudan for genocide in Sudan. And we're giving money for the investigation. We're providing intelligence for the investigation. But we don't have to worry about anyone ever being prosecuted because essentially the United States would bomb the country that handed over an American soldier, or for that matter, the president, to the International Criminal Court. But beyond that, the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court is based on complementarity, C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-I-T-Y. You'll see it in the reading. And that says that. The ICC will only take jurisdiction if a country is unwilling or unable to prosecute. So a, a, a crime under international law has to violate the statute. And for our moot court, that will be the definition of crimes against humanity, which I, I predict will involve 
debates in, in, in our little court as to whether there's been an armed attack, systematic widespread attack or not, a, a big factual issue in applying the law. But the principle of complementarity is some, an issue that the United States won in the negotiations. Now, it's important to note the United States lost, to some degree, three major parts of the negotiation of the code. The first is on jurisdiction. The United States wanted a veto power in the Security Council to stop a prosecutor, presumably from prosecuting a US person. Now, there's, it's unclear as to whether this was really necessary or not, because the UN Security Council now could still veto a prosecution, assuming none of the five permanent members vetoed it, and they got nine votes out of 15. And it depends on how the veto is interpreted. It, some Americans wanted the idea, if the Americans alone vetoed the prosecution, that would stop the prosecution. Second, uh, in addition to that on jurisdiction, um, the United States wanted to exempt any country that didn't ratify the treaty, and they lost on, we lost on that. So technically, theoretically anyway, the 130 countries or so that have ratified the ICC statute, if there's a crime committed on the territory of that, any of those 130 countries, and that government arrested uh, an American or a Russian or a Chinese um, or others, they would be eligible for extradition. And the pretrial chamber would have to see whether the United States was unwilling or unable to investigate and if there was probable cause to prosecute. And finally, the, the notion of the independent prosecutor. In, 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 in um, legal systems, the judiciary is supposed to be independent and implied that judges and lawyers are meant to be independent. And the United States wanted uh, to be able to stop a prosecutor by itself. And now, instead, they built in lots of checks and balances so that uh, rogue prosecution is almost impossible, um, even though politically the United States might claim uh, a US citizen might be singled out for prosecution. All of this is by way of background. Let me get to the heart of common law approaches from the reading. The first is, there is the material element. You'll see that on page 95 of the reading, followed by the mental element. And thirdly, grounds for excluding responsibility. So material element, mental element, and grounds for excluding responsibility. Now material element is defined as, you know, did you do the acts that are prohibited? Now that, that you know, is the heart of a crime, right? But it's more complicated than that. And it would be more complicated in a common law system. But in a code-based system, you first have to establish the contextual element. So pay attention, really learn this well, because it's going to be the heart of our efforts in the moot court. You not only have to say that you, the person did what you're not allowed to do, which is you know, a widespread systematic attack on a defenseless population, let's say. But there has, has to be, um, sorry, the widespread systematic attack is the contextual element. And then you can't go killing innocent civilians, raping, torturing. So the material element is the raping, torturing, and killing of civilians. 
The contextual element is in the context of a widespread systematic attack. So in every code-based system around the world, the material element of a crime includes both the specific acts and the context. So in our moot court, or if you end up being a lawyer in Quebec, Canada, Mexico, South America, the continent of Europe, French Africa, um, Rwanda, Burundi, any place that in the world that's not a former English colony, and you end up wanting to be a prosecutor or a defense attorney or a judge, and you're doing a criminal case, the first thing is the material element, and the material element is divided between the contextual element and the specific acts. The second is the mental element. You have to show that the person intended to do those things, right? Now that's, in our system, that's primarily the defense of, of insanity. But there's some lots of factual issues that are not straightforward. Um, murder is the intention to kill, that which is premeditated, right? And manslaughter is reckless killing of human life, I think. I'm not precisely sure that that's the exact distinction. But you, know, you didn't intend to kill them, but you were so reckless that you killed the person. So that would be, they're both homicides, but uh, manslaughter is the, the crime of reckless disregard for human life. You didn't intend it, but you, know, you, did, you did actions that a reasonable person would, would, would have avoided in order to avoid the risk of murdering someone. Uh, uh, sorry, of killing someone, not murdering, but uh, killing them. So you don't drive drunk, you know, and drive 90 miles an hour. You don't drive drunk, and you don't drive 90 miles an hour, and you don't do both. You don't intend to kill anybody, but a reasonable person would not, obeying the law, would not do those things. And if you end up killing someone, that's manslaughter, even though you didn't intend it. Um, so in that particular situation, uh, manslaughter for a common law system, it's a different set of definitions. In, in a code-based system around the world, the contextual element would be uh, driving drunk and speeding, let's say at night, you know, when it's even more dangerous. And then the specific acts would be, you know, and driving the car recklessly that result in the death of the person. The um, mental element in the statute that we're going to be looking at has a lot of exceptions put down for defenses. And we'll get to those in detail during our course. But it, it, you know, the ex there are hardly any exceptions in the material elements, right? You, know, you have the context, widespread systematic attack for crimes against humanity, and the specific enumeration of acts. But there's no exceptions, right? You, you meet the material element if those two criteria are met. For mental element, there's a whole listing of defenses that could be put forward to exempt you. Obviously, insanity would be one. Um, superior responsibility is one that is hard to respond, hard to define. But to some extent, you know, if you are a superior, but you would a reasonable superior would not be expected to have known about what your inferior people, and by inferior I mean lower ranking, uh, 
that you're, whom you are responsible for, you wouldn't be reasonably expected to know that what they were doing or to inquire, then that might be an exception. Even though the material elements or people under your command violated the material elements, but the mental elements exempt you. And we'll get to the specifics of mental elements in the future. So again, the three criteria, I'll get to your question in a second, are is it a crime against international law, which is, you know, not only is it a crime, but in the case of the International Criminal Court, is the country unwilling or unable to prosecute? And then the two basic categories are the material element and the mental element. Material element is divided between the contextual and the specifics. And then the mental element is, was there intention to do the things in the material element? And are there any defenses that will exempt you from prosecution? Yeah, um, going back to um, um, an international crime, it's not just a violation of an international code. Um, if, it's not a, if it's not just a violation of international code, what else do you violate apart from the code? No, it's just the code, but you can be, it can have a violation of code and still not be a crime under international law because the country is willing to prosecute in its domestic jurisdiction. Oh, okay. So if it's within this domestic jurisdiction, they can still, the country. As far as the International Criminal Court is concerned, in other courts like the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, they had superior jurisdiction and they could take any case they wanted, whether or not a country was willing or able to prosecute or not. Um, now, we'll talk in the future about distinctions between a crime international against international law uh, and other types of international crimes. And there are distinctions that are quite complicated, but this will suffice for now. Uh, should remind you, though, that uh, the ICC statute has not been applied in a case yet. So right now, in theory, the way the International Criminal Court statute is going to be applied is exactly the way it's applied in code-based systems. Uh, and until the very first case, whether it's Joseph Kony of the Lord's Resistance Army, or the President of S uh, Bashir of Sudan, uh, or um, various people in, in the Great Lakes region of Africa, and possible extensions now to Asia, but uh, clearly not the developed world seems to exempt it itself. Um, we'll see whether that's the actual practice or not. But for purposes of our moot court, uh, code-based analysis will follow exactly the way the majority of countries uh, interpret criminal codes uh, in their countries. Um, the other point, though, is the statute is not the whole story. First, there are preparatory commissions, and preparatory commissions both preceded and followed uh, the International Criminal Court's statutes um, promulgation, excuse me, promulgation, that is the signing in July 1998. So between July 1998 and the, the time when there was enough ratifications, uh, they met to define the elements of crime. This was controversial for many jurists from English post-colonies, like from the United States, because we don't leave it up to judges to define the elements of crime. Our approach, our methodology, and this is different, is 
you might have a statute, but you wait to judges to apply the language to specific factual circumstances because a legislator, or for that matter, a judge in a previous case, is not expected to be clairvoyant or brilliant or prescient. I'm using a lot of big words. I apologize. You know, imagine all the situations it could come for, that could come up where a statute might be applied. Plus, the future you can't guess the future, divine the future. You can't. You don't know how uh, understandings of terminology and facts will change in the future. So our approach in the common law system, using adversarial trials, is to start off. You know, with a basic definition and then apply it and refine it and redefine it and redefine it on a case-by-case -case basis with greater precision as it's applied. In code-based systems, they pass laws in the legislature to give greater precision because whatever is decided has absolutely no legal binding value at all. It may have administrative value or political value. That is, judges in code-based systems usually are part of a civil service. They have a career in a bureaucracy. They're not going to be promoted if they don't toe the line and stick to the way that's always done in that bureaucracy, which is usually run by the Ministry of Justice, which raises questions, at least from common law perspectives, whether judges in code-based systems are really independent because they are career bureaucrats. You know, you go to Georgia State, you major in law, then you go to judges school for six months to two years, if you pass the exams, you're a judge. And you start off as a junior judge, and you work your way up the bureaucracy. Uh, and you may specialize in being presiding judge or prosecuting judge in the ways that I talked about last time. And that's your career path. And you're undoubtedly going to tend to decide cases the way uh, judges typically decide these cases. But you're not technically bound. You don't have to write a decision that anyone can read to justify your ruling. Although, of course, American judges don't always have to write them either. Appellate judges almost always have to. And certainly the US Supreme Court, you have to write one or uh, concur with a majority or minority opinion. Um, but in most trials, right, so ruled, right? Do you have to write anything? Judges, I mean, the, it's, the decision's recorded, but the justification, the reasoning is not. Judges may want to because they want to explain themselves to the profession to the public or make a name for themselves, especially if they like making law. But you know, most judges don't write up long opinions. They're overworked, over busy. They've got 40 trials going on at the same time, five or six of them very active. One big trial consuming three days a week. Thursday is all the other trials. And Friday is a day of preparation for all the other things. And nights and weekends are for writing up cases and planning. It's a hard job. Did you have a question? Um, so that's all I want to say about the reading for today. But let me alert you to the fact that as the court evolves, there will be case law emerging. I would predict that the International Criminal Court will mimic the German Supreme Court. That is a code-based system, but a de facto common law highest court of the country, where the highest court of the country will have case law which then will be binding on the lower German courts. And so the lower German courts really end up citing both codes, statutes, and cases of the Supreme Court, but not middle-level courts and lower-ranking courts. They don't cite those cases because they're not binding. And I think the International Criminal Court will 
emerge as a hybrid court for that reason, because they'll be citing future cases, decisions of the International Criminal Court and its appellate division. And secondly, because the trial's criminal procedure will be much more like an adversarial trial in a common law system. So the law will come from the codes, but the trials will be conducted in an adversarial proceeding where the judge is a neutral rule keeper and the both sides defend their opposite positions. Whereas in a code-based <coughs> system, which is the inquisitorial system, I know that connotes the inquisition, but I think criminals often feel like it's the inquisition, uh, 1492 in Spain, uh, which you may or may not know about, uh, but the idea that you know, you're being basically uh, examined by a judge who he has made up his or her mind or at least has a hypothesis as to what happened and you almost feel like you're guilty until you prove your own innocence. That's not supposed to work that way but that's how people feel when the judge is basically pursuing the line of questionings on the evidence based on hunches about the guilt, presumed guilt even though technically you're presumed innocent. And in this case I think they really want to make it look like you're innocent until proven guilty. So instead of having a judge asking any questions at the trial stage and determining the facts, that's up to the two sides uh, for direct examination and then cross-examination of witnesses that are presented by both the prosecution and the defense. Are there any questions? Okay, uh, then let's uh, turn to uh, the question of torture as we're halfway through the class, roughly. In this book, uh, we're going to look at essays in favor and against uh, torture, but that's kind of a bald way of describing the situation. I mean, all legal systems in the world ban torture. That is, there are, just as all legal systems have a prohibition of murder, right? That it may be defined in a different way, but every country in the world has unlawful killing intentional unlawful killing in the case of murder, unintentional unlawful killing in the case of manslaughter. And, you know, there's, there's a high degree of convergence, right? Per, certainly for apolitical issues. But there are whole kinds of defenses that exist for killing. Most legal systems, but not all, will uh, exempt uh, killing in self-defense. But how do you define self-defense, right? That's a big, that can be a very complicated question. Shoot first and ask questions later. What if the other person might have a gun? You know, some societies might say you can shoot first. Um, clearly in countries that are more anarchic, that is in the Greek sense of anarchy, not chaos, but the lack of government or the lack of the rule of law, uh, you're more likely to get a rule which says you can shoot first and ask questions later. If you anyone see the movie with uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart, the Tre Treasure of Sierra Madre? One person only. Um, okay. Well, I used to watch all these World War II era films when I was a kid. Um, you know, and Bogey is is he's trying to get gold, and he's with his partner, right? And you know, they're out in the wilderness, and they don't know what the other guy's thinking they're doing and whether they're going to rob each other's gold, and so they're always pulling a gun on each other. And I suspect, you know, this was, takes place in Mexico, 
But I also suspect in the Wild West of the United States, as it's sometimes called, you know, if you pulled a gun because you didn't trust the other guy, because the other guy had a gun, you would be possibly more often, I don't want to say definitely, but possibly more often excused for killing somebody because you thought he was going to shoot you. Whereas now today, you know, it, would be, it would be an objective test, not what you thought, but what an outside observer would consider would, to be reasonable, or what the so-called reasonable man would think whether it was a, a dangerous situation or not. Uh, also, you know, if you voluntarily put yourself in that dangerous situation, you still just can't, um, it can't, it has to be a pretty high bar, not just that there's a chance that he might pull the gun on you, but, you know, a reasonable person would think that it was reasonable for you to shoot first and not ask questions later, i.e., uh, you have to wait until you really were threatened to be killed. So the issue of torture, then, is a crime in all legal systems that we know about. In addition, it's banned by international law, first as uh, the introductory uh, essay uh, by Ariel Dorfman, who is a victim of torture in Chile, points out uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 banned torture. But that was technically just a declaration. It wasn't a binding treaty. It was a unanimous resolution with a few abstentions, but no dissenting votes, of the United Nations General Assembly on December 10, 1948. Uh, for various historical reasons, they didn't get the treaties that were expected to be passed in the next year or two. And so in 1967, 19, 1966, 18 years later, they promulgated the two international covenants on human rights, one of which on civil and political rights bans torture. And then in 1984, the UN General Assembly promulgated the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. So by 1984, there was a treaty on the books. It hadn't come into force yet, because like all treaties, you need a minimum number of countries, that is states, to ratify the treaty. But by 1984, there was a specific treaty that banned not only torture, but other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Now, notice a couple of things first. With this international law, you've got a US constitutional prohibition against cruel or unusual punishment. And that has been interpreted by the Supreme Court in various ways. I'm not a lawyer, let alone a teacher of public law in the United States, but I think I know enough about it to know that or means you could violate the US Constitution if you practice cruelty. But if it says cruel and unusual punishment, cruelty that's common is not unconstitutional. And unfortunately, from my viewpoint speaking personally, the US Constitution says cruel and unusual punishment. So. Common cruelty in the United States is not banned. And torture, as a word, is not banned as such in the US Constitution. So the prohibition against torture in the United States, which you can argue is not uncommon, because most urban police forces are accused of beating the crap out of people that won't talk in the, in the, the police house from time to time, because there's unbelievable pressure to get the person that murdered somebody. And if some, they think somebody knows and the person isn't talking, and the lawyer isn't present, they might just beat the person up. Now, 
That's illegal. That violates statutes in every, country, every state of the United States, I'm sure. But it happens. But you could make the case that even though it's criminal behavior, and even though it may not happen very often, it happens often enough, so it's not unusual. So criminal behavior that's not unusual, i.e., does that mean usual? Not, does not unusual mean usual? Now, if you're a lawyer, these kinds of word games are what lawyers do, right? So one side would say, not unusual means usual. And most police forces don't beat the crap out of people in the state house, if for only a reason, because it's required to read your Miranda rights. And most people say, I'm not going to talk to you until I have a lawyer present. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't, because they want to say, well, i got nothing to be afraid of. So you know, they get themselves in a lot of trouble by not insisting on their constitutional rights to have a lawyer that had been established since the Miranda decision. But another lawyer side might say, not unusual does not mean usual. It just means not unusual. Now, I suppose we could have an interesting debate. It might be, might be illustrative. I would invite, who wants to say that cruel and unusual means usual? And who wants to say cruel and unusual means just not unusual, but possible? Anyone want to take a stab at that? You're an oral argument before the US Supreme Court taking a torture case. And the, the, the judges do ask questions on the law, not on the facts, in the US Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas does not, and so did most judges in American history not ask questions. But now all these judges love to ask questions. And they're going to ask you, how do you define counsel cruel and unusual? Anyone want to take a stab at that? I should, maybe I shouldn't use that word. <laughs> Well, no one. Yes? Uh, well, it would just depend on, I guess, if we're talking about the US Supreme Court, it would depend on the culture. Uh, I mean, certain forms of torture, quote unquote, are not seen as above and beyond. I guess they're not cruel or unusual, just depending on where you're from. I mean, so which side are you saying? Take it. I'm saying that torture in certain areas not only Justified but necessary. Because, of, but, but specifically in interpreting cruel and unusual. No, How do you define unusual? I mean, it would depend on, it's a case by case basis. I mean, it would depend on what unusual. Okay, but for your argument, you would say, you would argue that uh, unusual means not usual. Right. And you say, look, we don't torture, we only torture in the rare circumstance, right? We only torture when we need to. And uh, it's not banned by the US Constitution. And you would say cruel and unusual means it not only has to be cruel, because if it said cruel or unusual, all torture would be banned. Because it wouldn't ha the usual criterion would not be relevant. It would be one or the other. But cruel and unusual means it has to be cruel and has to be unusual. And you would say unusual means not usual i.e. not the ordinary thing. Well, it also depend on the severity of what people would consider cruel. I mean, there are a bunch of organizations out there that say our prison system is cruel. And right, but, but, but remember, because of the word A-N-D, and, we can, ac we, can, we can accept that it's cruel. It doesn't, the point is, it doesn't matter whether it's cruel or not. It has to be unusual. Well, it has to be both. Right, but, oh, you're saying that torture is not cruel? I mean, it just depends on your level of severity of the word cruel. 
I mean, I'm sorry if someone decided. To okay, so you haven't. You're, you're okay. You're making you're making an argument that torture is not always cruel. That's an unusual argument. I mean, it, it's like almost it's a case by case basis. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't feel bad for someone who's going to get hurt a little bit who took multiple lives by doing their. Isn't the person innocent until proven guilty? You're presuming that person's guilty. Doesn't that necessitate that someone's not punished for their crime before they're proven I think he raised his hand first. Sorry. I think you said you'd have to say that um, for usual or unusual is the jurisdiction of where the, the, the case happened. It's, if you're talking through arguments, U.S. Supreme Court, well, anything that's not unusual or, you know, uh, in the usual, U.S. In the U.S. Right. Or if you were in, for the ICC, it's just, you have to look at The ICC it. doesn't have U.S. criteria. ICC is cruel or, or inhuman, degrading. Oh, well, that's a different story. It's a different standard. In any event, what I'm pointing out is we have a different criterion in U.S. constitutional law, however it's interpreted, from the International Criminal Court's rule on torture, which is taken straight from the Convention Against Torture, which is severe pain under interrogation. Now, the United States, when it, the Bush administration took over, decided to say that um, even though we ratified the CAT, the Convention Against Torture, we will define it as very severe pain. Okay, so the United States said, uh, because of for all, whatever our reasons are, we define torture as very severe pain. And early on, and this changed four years through the Bush administration for sure, if not before, but in the first couple of years after 9-11, when everything changed, as it was often stated, uh, the United States legal interpretation was any amount of pain short of organ failure or death. So it, that sounds like even more than very severe. The United States, under the Bush administration, by the second term, had a standard much closer, if not identical, to what the Obama administration has done. So it's the same policy now, second Bush term and the Obama term. Um, and I, although the Obama administration has banned torture, it hasn't clarified its definition of torture. And it's no longer organ failure and death, but it would appear, since all this information appears to, seems to be classified, that the Obama administration accepts the U.S. position that the Convention Against Torture's definition doesn't go f uh, far enough. Uh, and we, we say torture only applies to very severe pain. Um, now, Dorfman's introduction is extremely moving because he talks about the woman who's in an apartment in France when they're living in exile because uh, Pinochet murdered 3,000 people, uh, dissidents without a due process, without a trial, um, in the early weeks. And then he stopped. In fact, he was much less of a murderer than the Argentine Junta, for example, which murdered 30,000. People in much more of an attempt to exterminate a whole movement and a whole culture uh, in the, in Argentine society. Pinochet just wanted to get rid of the radical political elements and and then let everyone leave. He's sort of like Castro in Cuba. If you have a firing squad in the football stadium, what we call soccer, um, maybe it was a baseball stadium in Cuba. I don't really know. Uh, they have both. Um, let everyone go. 
and let export the problem. So all the rich white people from Cuba let, went to Miami and other places in Latin America and Europe uh, after the initial waves of assassination. In Iran, it was much the same thing under the Ayatollah, Khomeini. Uh, they murdered a lot of people in firing squad, in the football stadium, in the public, in public executions, and then let everyone else leave. And then you get all this expatriate politics. And you know that certainly in the case of Chile and, and Iran, I don't think Cuba so much, there were an awful lot of assassinations abroad to make sure that you're not trying to come back and do anything uh, dangerous in the society or just because they wanted to kill you, just to, to, to terrorize you. Um, but this is a very moving story about a young man who was killed at the age of 26. And when he meets the wife, the wife is hugging the child, and he thinks to himself, the husband, who was, who was a manager of a factory in the north of Chile, uh, you know, at the age of 26, was able to hold his child before he was eliminated. And the story, if you had a chance to read it, is even more moving because the father of the, man, the son, of the husband, of the woman in Paris, where the, he's uh, Dorfman, who's a professor of literature at Duke University, and a famous dissident. Um, the father of the victim, you know, initially was very pro-Pinochet, pro-coup against the Marxist elected government of Salvador Allende, which came to power in 1970 and was overthrown in 1973. And initially, he assumed that Pinochet wouldn't do these evil things. And he said, well, let him be arrested, you know? My son is a Marxist. And he should know better, right? even though he wasn't violent. It wasn't illegal in Chile to be a Marxist. Allende was elected as a Marxist, a democratic Marxist. Now, you could say that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. Um, but you know, the argument would be you know, just because the Soviet Union had Leninism or Stalinist Leninism, which converted uh, Marxism into an anti-democratic movement, there's no theoretical reason why Marxism, or for that matter, socialism, can't be democratic. In fact, you've got socialist parties all over the world that claim to be democratic and socialist. But this father was very conservative. Now, it's interesting that the father was completely scandalized, even though he agreed with the need for the coup, the need for authoritarian rule, and the need to arrest a lot of these dissidents. But he didn't think his son ought to be tortured and murdered. That went beyond the pale. So for Dorfman, torture is something that's illegal and immoral, and is something which even people who agree with regimes that practice systematic torture came because of the personal experience of his son to understand that there are a whole lot of innocent people that don't deserve to be tortured, because all they know about is that people dissent from the regime's policies. That if you believe in freedom, that means the right to oppose, even to oppose the system, so long as you are nonviolent, so long as you obey the law, and that you know if, if you commit a crime, that you are duly charged according to due process, that is, a non-arbitrary procedure that follows the rules and attempts to follow the same rules for everybody. So it's interesting that this baby symbolizes just not the tears in the eyes of Dorfman looking at the mother and thinking the mother is now 26, the same age as the husband had been when the baby was even younger, this being a year and a half after his murder, approximately. 
uh, for Dorfman, it's you know the tears of knowing that this woman who now had a new boyfriend, but you know was married to somebody who was murdered for his beliefs. Now, a lot of people in discussing torture will say, "Yeah, but what Pinochet did was end the communist threat. Communist was a real threat. You got to do certain things to stop communism." And that's the kind of argument typically couched in the words national security or anti-terrorism that's the context for the post 9-11 use of torture by the United States. Now, the polar opposite to Dorfman's position is that of Alan Dershowitz. And Alan Dershowitz's essay is in this book, and we're going to discuss his position in detail when we read his essay for this class. But what Dershowitz argues is an interesting argument and one that shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. And that is the argument that if every country is violating a crime, is it really still a crime? If every country, and Dorfman says 130 out of then, you know, 185 or 190 countries in the world are reportedly practicing torture, I doubt it's that low. I think probably every country commits crimes of torture, whether it's legal or not. I mean, maybe you know, it's not a crime in some countries, but by now, at least under international law, it doesn't matter whether a country has ratified the treaty or not. It falls in that very small category of crimes called jus cogens. You don't have to know this for this class. But jus cogens is the argument that there are some acts which are so awful that they violate the conscience of humanity and irrespective of whether it's a crime on the books in a country or irrespective of whether it's a forbidden by international law as interpreted or whether there's even a treaty on the matter, it's criminal. For example, until the International Criminal Court uh, statute was promulgated, and certainly before the two ad hoc tribunals of the 1990s came forward, rape as a systematic war crime was not banned by any treaty. The Geneva Conventions referred to offenses against the dignity of women. But in 1949, at the conventions in Geneva, they, they didn't use the word rape, or specifically not just criminal rape, but rape as a tactic of warfare. So they're technically, if you want to take a strict constructionist interpretation, there was no prohibition of rape as a way to defeat the civilian community in a war context. Now Dershowitz's position is that since all countries practice torture and all countries practice hypocrisy, it's ridiculous to assume that this uh, is a crime in all circumstances. And that there are circumstances in which torture should not be a crime because it's there is a ticking time bomb where the person in captivity or detention knows where the bomb is, when it's going to explode. And if you let the person have his or her constitutional or human rights, mass murder could take place. And so Alan Dershowitz says, not only for ticking time bomb, but we know the police departments in trying to solve a crime often practices torture because they know there are no witnesses and there are no leads and the only way they're going to find out is by using cruelty. 
And so what Dershowitz argues for is a torture warrant where you go to a judge as if you were going to a judge to get a search warrant to violate the rights to privacy because there's probable cause of evidence of a crime in a house. So you get to break into the house if an independent party makes an independent judgment. So the argument for torture warrants by Alan Dershowitz is that if you go to an independent judge who has no career or organizational linkage to the organization seeking the torture warrant, that judge can weigh the facts and say, okay, there are, in this specific instance, the context merits a little bit of cruelty because A, there's probable cause or maybe even possible cause of the person knowing about the ticking time bomb or the facts of the crime. Uh, and the only way they're going to get the information is by applying cruelty, maybe because they've already tried to get the answer voluntarily and it wasn't asked. Yeah. I'll come to your question in a sec. Um, you, you talked about the police departments using torture as a way to, to they have these leads and they can't, but they can't get the information to confirm it or whatever. Um, so they have to use cruelty in order to... Well, I don't say they have to. They choose well, to. Well, they choose to use cruelty. Individuals choose to. Um, and I say it is some, a crime. If someone... I know. I'm just saying, if someone argues that that is not a crime, then doesn't it follow that the defense should also have the opportunity to beat the ever-living crap out of a police officer to make its case? Because then the prosecution has an unfair advantage in making its own case. Well, that's an interesting argument. <laughs> Um, I'm sure the answer is no, <laughs> because it is a crime in a police department. Someone who says it's not a crime doesn't mean to say that the cruelty is desirable. They're just saying it's necessary in rarefied circumstances. And in the case of Dershowitz, you know, you've got to persuade a totally independent person that this last resort is necessary. So my answer is not in every circumstance, right? I guess my question would be then how do you draw the line and explain what is allowable if they go to an independent judge who issues a warrant for torture, then what boundaries are set within that warrant to do whatever, you know, to hit with a phone book or whatever? Well, I think, you know, like I think, how, you know, that, that's, that's a very good question. And I think, you know, in an ideal world, you would have a very clear statute which would say X is permitted but not Y. If you use Y, you've committed a crime. Um, it might even say, try this for a day and then come back to me and, and tell us what happened. And I might even send a witness, and they might be behind a one-way mirror or something. Um, but you know, these are perfectly valid questions. One of the problems about these incidents is that you have the blue wall of silence in police forces where they typically don't rat on each other. And by the way, I think most policemen are extremely honorable public servants, I love them to death, right? I, I want to be totally clear about that. And I think, you know, the same is true for most government employees in, in, in the world. Uh, corruption is a problem in much of the world, including the United States. But, you know, having said all this, you know, checks and balances are the way you try to, and accountability and transparency. But the problem is these things happen in secret, right? And for national security reasons, you limit the oversight so you'd have to also ensure that the court 
is trustworthy to keep the secret, and that any prosecution would also be secret. And the more these secret, secret, secret sequences occur in sequence, the less likely you're going to get real checks and balances. But you know we're in an imperfect world, right? We try to come up with second best solutions because the ideal solution is rarely available to us. It's a dilemma. There are competing values, right? The right to life is a value. Uh, I scarcely think anyone would say, if it was absolutely certain that there was a ticking time bomb, the person knew about the ticking time bomb, and that's a nuclear bomb, and it's in Times Square or downtown Atlanta, it would be hard to make the case that torture wouldn't be necessary if torture would reveal the information. Some people say, no, even then, don't do it. Others say, OK, if you, can, if you know all those things, fine, but we're not going to act on suspicion because most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, it doesn't come to that. Right? You can't take a suitcase with a nuclear bomb and walk into Times Square and blow it off, right? Because a nuclear bomb actually is a very big thing, right? The reason they fly it in or shoot it off on rockets is because there's a double fuse that has to go off, and that's a big issue, and you've got to contain the uranium isotope, and you know, you just can't walk. Maybe 30 years from now, 100 years from now, 20, 200 years from now, they'll invent something, you know, you just put the suitcase down, push the button. But right now, anyway, a nuclear. So under the current facts, you know, we don't have to worry about torturing somebody because somebody's going to walk into Times Square. We might have to torture them under this argument. You know, if there's a rocket off Manhattan Bay in a, a ship with a large enough booster to go forward. But yeah, I don't, on the one hand, you don't know. But on the other hand, you don't not know. Right? That's why it's a dilemma, right? You don't know whether the person knows about the ticking bomb, but you don't know that he doesn't know either. But empirically, if we look at enough cases, we might say, well, we would have been blown up by now if all these people knew. Now, what's tricky, and we'll, we'll see these in the essays by the Israelis in this book, is that Israel has both currents of thought. And by the way, just as in the Middle East crisis, there's much more debate about Palestinians and Israelis in Israel than there is in the United States, there's also much more debate about torture. Because the Israel used to have torture be legal. It was called shaking. You could shake somebody until they talked. And believe me, if you go shake, shake, is that the word, shaken? Uh, three days in a row, after a while, you consider that torture. And so torture was banned in 2001, I think was the year, by the Israeli Supreme Court. But the decision has a loophole for a ticking time bomb circumstance. And of course, it's a, what a reasonable person would think is a ticking time bomb circumstance. It's an objective test. It's not the subjective test, which is, did the person doing the interrogating think it was a ticking time bomb situation, right? You know, like in the Rodney King beating that most of you have probably seen the video or heard about in 1990, what year was that? 1992, spring of 1992 was the trial. I don't remember. 1991, I think, was the events. Um, the police officers in Simi Valley were exonerated because the law of LA County, Los Angeles, was a subjective test. It wasn't, was it reasonable for the police officers, officers to beat him up after they used taser guns and bounced off his checks like Superman? Which is actually what happened. He resisted arrest, they shot taser guns. And it didn't stop him. So then they beat him, beat him up. The test was not, did a reasonable person think it was necessary to keep on beating him after he was subdued? 
but whether the police thought it was necessary to keep beating him after he was subdued. And they proved to the jury, at least it appears they proved to the jury, that the police officer thought it was necessary, even though almost everyone would agree at a certain point they didn't have to keep hitting him. So that's the difference between objective test and a subjective test. An objective test is the reasonable person test, what an outside independent person. So this idea of torture warrants, again, says an independent person thinks that it's necessary, not you think it's necessary. And that's a, a crucial distinction in societies that have rule of law as opposed to rule by law. If you have rule of law, the law decides the rules. If you have rule by law, then you just take the law and apply it in a way that suits you. And one of the best tricks to do that is to say, I thought what I was doing was self-defense. Therefore, I was in, uh, allowed to proceed as such. Um, now, in reading these essays, we need to think about questions of necessity, proportionality, and immunity. These are three principles of international criminal law that apply to all legal systems. Can you say those again? Necessity, proportionality, and civilian immunity. And then we have to ask ourselves, after I define those terms, but just to alert you, whether or not we're going to apply this terms to all life or only to civilian life. In other words, do we throw out criminal law in a war? You've heard about the war on terrorism, or for that matter, the war on terror. Uh, the argument here is that there's criminal law and there's military law. And then the Bush administration expanded the third category, which is uh, neither military nor civilian law for unlawful combatants who refuse to obey the basic assumptions of military law. So first, necessity says if something like torture is being applied, it's being applied because it's necessary, because a legitimate goal of society has to be served. So if you were to excuse what is conventionally torture, you would say that the material element might meet the test of the specific prohibitions, but the contextual element that we talked about at the beginning of class would excuse it because of necessity. So that would be a way, an explicit prohibition of torture, and let's assume that the acts met the material element, but you would be exempted from prosecution because the context would exempt you on the grounds of necessity. In terms of proportionality, uh, the test would be that uh, torture might be allowed, but only the amount of torture, in other words, only the minimum amount of torture necessary to get the information. Just as you can't bomb a country 20 times as much as you need to defeat them. Or just as a police officer in subduing someone who resists arrest is prohibited from using more force than is necessary to subdue someone who's resisting arrest. You can't 
you can shoot somebody who's threatening you, but if someone's running away and they don't carry a gun and they've resisted arrest, you can't shoot to kill them. That's murder. That's one of the reasons why I have a lot of respect for police officers, because they have to make instantaneous decisions that, you know, behind in taking a test or in a calm moment, they can tell you what the rule is. But you have to be trained so well, you know, somebody's shooting at you or some, someone's resisting you, might even have bitten you or done something else to arrest, and then he's running away. You're not sure whether they're armed. You think he's not armed, but you don't know whether he's armed. And you've got to say, hey, don't shoot him. Or shoot him in the legs. Well, what if you shoot him in the legs and you happen to hit, go through his heart? Yes? I also think it's there's a difference in stating what theory you believe in until you've actually been in that situation. And that's why it's hard as civilians when we see government or police officers take action. It's hard because, yeah, you don't believe that they should have hit him that many times, but until you've been in a situation where you may feel at risk or the, the circumstances of the situation, it is different. So it, it's tough on both sides. It, but it, it's also a dilemma in the following sense. On the one hand, um, I've heard military friends say, oh, you're a civilian. How would you understand? Right? And I'm saying, I know I don't understand what it's like to be in combat, because I've, I've been close to combat in my life as a reporter, but I've never been a combatant. Believe me, I was scared. <laughs> I said, this ain't Hollywood. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, we believe in a democracy, anyway, of civilian control. Now, that doesn't mean controlling you what you do in the field, but it does mean accountability. The president is the commander in chief, and nobody's above the law. Um, so I have tremendous respect for people who take decisions, sincere decisions, doing the right thing. And I also admit that I don't have the experience firsthand. I've read about it, I've seen movies, and all that kind of thing. And oh, sorry. And I do believe in military justice, right? I don't think that combatants should be tried in civilian courts ordinarily. And the military has their system. As I understand it, it's not always a military judge, but rather an officer without, who's not a judge, who's not a lawyer, who makes the decisions because they have the understanding of the combat situation that a civilian would not have. Um, but in the case of torture, you know, it's not permitted to, for a military person to use torture any more than a civilian. So. <clears throat> is it wrong for a civilian court to prosecute a military person? And right now, the United States' position is ambiguous because on the one hand, it's banned under civilian law. On the other hand, it's banned under military law. Or in an ordinary circumstance, they would say, let the military court prosecute. And of course, it should be underscored as we close for today that most of the allegations of torture have not been against the US military. Now, Abu Ghraib was the US military. but. Most of the scandal has been about intelligence agencies who are civilians. Or even more, not even employees of the US government, but contractors, which leads people to suspect front groups are used by the CIA, so the CIA can plausibly deny that they are directly responsible for this. And they can say, oh, that contractor violated US law. It's not the position of the CIA to condone or to permit torture. OK, that's it for today. We'll see you next Monday. Please do pick up the binder at Best Way Copy Shop so you can learn some of these basic elements of criminal law.